0: Glad to see you this morning. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey or whatever it is that's brought you here this morning, we're glad you're here with us. If you are new with us, you should know that we are in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians. And This morning that lands us in Philippians chapter 2. We like to take books of the Bible here at Fremont Free and preach to them verse by verse because we want the Word of God to set the agenda. That's what we're doing this morning in Philippians 2. Let me pray, then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we do want to pause here. I want to pause and just ask for your help this morning that I would be faithful to preach your Word as it's laid out. The goal this morning for me is just to be a faithful mailman, to deliver the mail. I don't change the message, I just try to deliver it faithfully. So help me to do that. If there's anything I say this morning that is not consistent with your word, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But Lord, if it is consistent with your word, I pray that it would land and that we would have ears to hear and that you would speak. So God, we're just asking for your help this morning. We acknowledge this every single week, but we need to acknowledge it again this morning. We need you, and we need your spirit to be at work if anything is going to happen in this moment that will be of eternal consequence. So we're asking for your spirit's help, and we're praying that you would work through the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, for my money, it's one of the most dramatic scenes in movie history, or at least children's movie history. Woody, Buzz Lightyear, and the rest of the Toy Story crew are on a conveyor belt headed directly towards the incinerator. And they know at this point in the movie there is nothing they can do to stop the progress of the belt. They realize they're going to die or cease to exist or whatever happens to toys. So they hold hands together and they wait for the end to come. Now, thankfully, if you've seen the movie, you know that Woody and the gang are rescued at the last minute by the claw, so the story has a happy ending. But even still, that conveyor belt scene is incredibly traumatic. And the trauma of that moment can all be traced back to one villainous character, Lotso Huggin' Bear, or Lotso Bear for short. Lotso is a large, magenta-colored, strawberry-scented teddy bear, and undoubtedly he is the main villain of that movie, Toy Story 3. Although he has a pleasant exterior throughout the movie, Lotso is shown to be a cruel, sadistic, ruthless dictator. And above all, he's just plain selfish. And that selfishness is on full display in that last scene with Incinerator. At one point in the dramatic scene, Lotso has a chance to push an emergency stop button and save Woody and the rest of the toys, but he refuses to do so. In fact, he taunts them as they're on their way to their death. And this despite the fact that Woody and Buzz Lightyear just saved him from his death. It's the ultimate act of selfishness. In the end, it showed that Lotso cared about only one thing, himself. It's no wonder, then, that even watching the movie as an adult, I despised that pink teddy bear. He was a despicable character, selfish to his very core. But as despicable as Lotso Bear was, he does not stand alone in his villainy. There are many other movie and literary characters that are just as wicked and just as selfish. Think of Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life or The Wicked Stepmother and Cinderella or Scar in The Lion King and on and on the list goes. And the truth is that we love to hate these types of characters. There's something about a character that only cares about themselves that is just repulsive to us and grows in us a huge dislike. And that's not just true of fictional characters, is it? When we read or hear stories about politicians or world leaders or coaches or CEOs who only look out for themselves, we are equally repulsed. There's something about selfishness that inherently we all know is just ugly. And when we see car- others caring only for themselves, whether it be in movies or real life, we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet the great challenge this morning is this. Within each of us lies that same pull towards selfishness and prideful self-centeredness. We despise selfishness in others. In fact, we hate it. And yet we're often just as selfish as the person whose selfishness we despise. And that's what makes today's passage both necessary and challenging. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, Paul calls the church at Philippi to live in unity. And to do so by prioritizing the needs of others and seeing others as more significant. What Paul is asking the Philippians to do in verses 1 through 11 is fairly straightforward. It's not hard to figure out what Paul is asking them to do. His meaning is plain enough. But actually doing what he says to do is an entirely different thing. It's one thing to talk in theory about the need to live for others or set aside our own interests or count others as more significant and in humility see ourselves as less significant. But to actually do that, and to actually set aside our interests, and to actually prioritize the needs of others, well, that is a completely different thing. But make no mistake about it, that is the charge that Paul is giving to the Philippians in Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11. In Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11, Paul points to the example of Jesus Christ, and he calls us as his followers, as the followers of Jesus Christ, to live in the same selfless, others focused way. And so my prayer this morning is this. I hope that we leave here this morning committed to living more like Jesus and less like Lots Bear, which seems like a pretty good goal for Christians, by the way, one that is much harder in reality than it is in theory. So I said, let's get to it. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, if you can, physically able, please stand. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves it's the word of God and as such it is due our reverence. You can listen as I read, look along at the words on the screen or follow along in your own Bibles, but Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, we read this beginning in verse 1. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Word of God, you may be seated. So there's certainly a lot going on in this passage here in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, and verses 5 through 11. Paul, Paul goes on a bit of an extended discourse about who Jesus is and what he's done. And as he does so, he hops into some of the most theologically rich material about Christ in all of the book of Philippians, maybe in all of the New Testament. But those theologically rich meditations on the person and work of Christ are set up by ethical exhortations in verses 1 to 4, in which Paul is challenging the Philippians to live in a certain way. So let's start there, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So the passage starts here in verse one with Paul setting up some conditional if-then statements. He's saying, "If this is true, then do this. Now, I think he's using those if-then statements as a rhetorical device and also to provide some motivation, and we'll return to that motivation here shortly. But nevertheless, the main verb does not show up until verse 2, when Paul tells the Philippians to complete his joy. And then the rest of verses 1 to 4, he goes on to tell the Philippians how to do this. They will complete his joy if they are of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. In other words, they'll complete his joy if they have unity in Jesus. And then in verses 3 to 4, Paul goes on to clarify how that's going to happen. In short, we could summarize verses 3 and 4 by saying this, the way in which we pursue unity is by looking to the interest of others. Counting others' needs as more significant than our own. And again, I think that's the main charge or exhortation of this passage. Paul wants the Philippians to complete his joy by pursuing unity, and the way they do this is by looking to the interest of others and counting others as more significant. Or to say it another way, we should do nothing out of selfish ambition, but instead should look to others' interests. This is the main charge of the passage. And in saying that, I think we can safely say that the main exhortation then of verses 1 to 4 is plain enough. It's easy to understand what Paul's saying, but actually in that plainness lies the challenge. If someone gives you an instruction and you don't understand what they mean when they say it, you can always claim ignorance as your excuse for not doing it. But if the instruction is straightforward, you don't have that excuse anymore. And in Philippians 2, we have no excuse. It's straightforward what Paul is asking us to do. In fact, listen again to verses 3 and 4. This is very straightforward. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not hard to figure out what Paul's saying there in verses 3 and 4 interpretation is not the challenge. Doing it, now that's the challenge. And that's why I think Paul actually motivates us in the rest of the passage to do what he's asking us to do in verses three and four. As he he tells us in verses three and four, to look to the interest of others on both the front end and the back end, he gives us motivation as to why we should do this. More specifically, I think he gives the Philippians and us two motivations to do nothing out of selfish ambition, but instead to look to the interest of others. The first motivation is found in verses 1 and 2. And I think the motivation is this. If we've experienced the love of God and the love of others in the body of Christ, we should want to love others in the same way. All right, so this is the front-end motivation. If we've experienced the love of Christ, if we've experienced the love of the body of Christ, we should want to love others in the same way. I think that's the point of these if-then statements that Paul makes in verses 1 and 2. Again, listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what Paul says to Philippians in verses 1 and 2 is this. If you have any encouragement from Christ, if you have any comfort from love, if you have any participation in the Spirit, if you have any affection and sympathy, then you should pursue unity in the body of Christ. I think it's obvious in Paul's if-then statements that he assumes they will have all of these things. In other words, he's not saying, if you have it, I don't know if you will. He's saying, if you have it, he's saying, of course you do. If you're a Christian, you have all of these things. You should have encouragement from knowing Jesus and being a part of the body of Christ. You should have comfort from the love of God and the love of others in the body. You should have participation in the spirit. You should have affection and sympathy. And therefore, Paul is saying, since you have these things, since you've experienced them in the body of Christ and from Jesus, you should seek to love others in the same way. And the way you do this is by setting aside your interest and looking to their interests. So that's the first motivation that Paul gives for doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but instead looking to others. He encourages us, if we've experienced the love of God and the love of others in the body of Christ, we should want to love others in the same way. But there's a second motivation that he gives for pursuing humility and seeking the interest of others. And that second motivation is where I want to spend most of our time together this morning. The second motivation is simply this. Jesus Set aside his interest and live for others. And as his followers, we should want to adopt the same mindset. So that's the second motivation, that Jesus set aside his interest and he lived for others. And as his followers, we should want to adopt the same mindset. If you want to know what it looks like in practice to actually live out verses 3 and 4, to set aside your interest and live for others, then you need look no further than the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul is making in verses 5 through 8. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what motivates us to set aside our interests for the sake of others? What motivates us to, in humility, count others as more significant than ourselves? Well, aside from what we've experienced from God and others, which was verses 1 and 2, our ultimate motivation, which Paul is now pointing to in verses 5 to 8, is a person. And the motivation is Jesus. Jesus lived a life for others. And as his followers, Paul is saying, we should have the same mindset. And that mindset is beautifully laid out for us in verses 6 through 8. Now, I should let you know that verses 6 to 8 In verses 6 to 8, we find some incredibly rich theological material about who Jesus is. I should also let you know, though, that almost every word of verses 6 to 8 has been dissected and debated over the years. There are some theological issues in these verses. So I think it's important that we slow down here and consider what's going on in verses 6 through 8. And consider some of the theological issues we need to work through. However, as we do that, we need to keep in mind that the point of these theological exhortations is to encourage us to live with the same mindset as Christ. In other words, Paul's not just giving us theological facts that we just put in our back pocket and we're like, cool fact about Jesus. No, he's telling us these things so that we'll live more like Jesus. All right, so let's slow down here. Let's go through verses 6 through 8 because, again, we want to understand what we're being called to live like. All right, so I'm going to read verses 6 to 8 one more time here. Talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now the trick of verses 6 to 8 is that there are some phrases that are somewhat ambiguous and leave us with some questions. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped? Or what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Those are important questions. And that's why I think it is wise that we slow down and consider what's being said here. So in verse 6, let's just start there. We're told that although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. To be in the form of God, I think, simply means that Jesus was in his very nature God. He possessed all of the characteristics and all the qualities of God, because he was and is God. Christ has always existed, and he has always been God. To quote John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word there is a reference to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or to use the language now of Philippians 2, he was in the form of God. In other words, we're saying that he's God. But, we're told here in verse 6, that Jesus did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, he did not see it as something to be seized upon. Or something to grab hold of for his own advantage or his own selfish purposes. Rather, he used his status as God to serve and love others. To use language of verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of his servant being born in the likeness of men. Now this idea that he emptied himself is the most controversial one in Philippians 2. And over the years, there have been all kinds of people who have gone in all kinds of unhealthy directions. Contrary to what some heretics have taught here, Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. That's what some would argue, he emptied himself of his deity. I don't think that's at all consistent with the rest of the New Testament. He remained fully God while becoming human. He remained fully God while becoming human, nor did Jesus empty himself of certain attributes of his deity. If he did that, he no longer would have been fully God. What we're saying then is this. Even though he was fully human, he was still fully God with all the attributes of God. 100% God, 100% man. There's a fancy theological term for this, the hypostatic union. It means that he was 100% God, 100% man at the same time. So when Paul tells us that Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a sermon, he's not suggesting that Jesus set aside his deity, that he stopped being God. Nor is he suggesting that Jesus set aside certain attributes of his deity, Rather, I think Paul is simply giving us a metaphor, a figure of speech here, to tell us that Jesus became a nobody. He took on a role of insignificance, he became a human. The God of the universe was born as a helpless baby, he became a nobody. And the fact that he did this is staggering. Twelve days ago, my sister had a baby. And this weekend, they came to visit, and we got a chance to meet the little guy. Our kids are older now, so sometimes I forget how small they once were. But holding my nephew reminded me, babies are really tiny, and they are completely helpless. And the fact that Jesus took on human form and came as a helpless baby is incredible. It's even more incredible that he was born to an insignificant family in an insignificant town in the middle of nowhere, and in a feeding trough for animals, no less. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. As I mentioned before, I went on a mission trip to Turkey in the summer of 2002. That trip was wild for a lot of reasons, some of which I told you about before, but one of the things that made the trip a little bit crazy is that we did not have any accommodations set up for us ahead of time. We had a list of 10 cities in Turkey that we had to visit, and we had no itinerary in any of those cities. They didn't line up bus tickets for us. They didn't line up hotels for us. We just had to find our way from city to city and then find a hotel once we got there. We also had a very small budget. So practically what that meant is every time we got off the bus in whatever city we were visiting, we just started walking until we would find a hotel. This was in the era before smartphones, which I know is hard to believe, but we couldn't just Google, where do we go? We just had to start walking with all of the luggage and just find a place. And given our budget, I can assure you we were not looking for the Marriott. I don't think any of the hotels we stayed in that month had a properly working shower, and most of them cost about $5 per night. No matter what city we were in, our accommodations were not luxurious, is what I'm telling you. We were roughing it, and we weren't just roughing it American-style, we were roughing it Turkish-style, which is a completely different level of roughing. But even though we'd become experts at living on the cheap, there was one hotel that ended up being just too much for us. I forget what city it was in, but we'd found the hotel the same way we always have. We got off the bus, we just started walking, We found a hotel. He showed us a sample room. It wasn't great, but it was adequate, so we checked in. But when we got to our actual rooms, we realized the room that he had showed us was not quite the same as the ones we checked into. Yes, it was just as small and just as unimpressive, but it was also dirty. And the beds were completely uncomfortable. And on top of that, this was the kicker, there were bugs everywhere. And so about five minutes after we checked in, the girls from our team, there was a girl on our team from Ireland, one from Scotland, and then myself and a guy from England, the girls came and knocked on our door and they said, we've got to go. We've got to go. And my roommate and I agreed 100%. Now, just a bit of a side note here. I should let you know that telling the hotel manager we were leaving ended up being quite the scene. He dramatically ripped up some papers, if I remember correctly, even threw them in the air. He was very upset. And I'm telling you, you've never lived until you've had an encounter with a Turkish hotel manager. Nevertheless, the point is, We left. We came to the conclusion there is no way we are going to stay in a place like that. We've been living on the cheap, but that hotel was too much. We were willing to humble ourselves, but not to that degree. And by the way, I'm not saying that critically of us. If I had to make that decision again, I would make the same decision in a heartbeat. I'll tell you that story to say this. If that's how I felt going from my comfortable house in the United States to a dirty Turkish hotel room, how much more humility did it take Jesus to leave the glories of heaven where he experienced perfect fellowship within the Trinity to come to this place, earth. I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but this place is kind of messed up. Right? Brokenness is everywhere. And yet Jesus chose to come here. And he came as a helpless and completely dependent baby. Of all things, he was born in a feeding trough for animals. That is Crazy. And if the story ended there, it would be humbling enough for us. It would be motivation enough to live like Jesus. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Because Jesus didn't just take on flesh. As verse 8 informs us, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's not just that he became man. It's not just that he became a helpless baby. It's not just that he entered into the brokenness of this world. It's also that he chose to be obedient to the point of death. As one commentator pointed out, for the rest of us, death is a necessary part of life in the fallen world. But for Jesus, it was a choice of obedience. He willingly laid down his life. And it wasn't just any death, it was death on a cross. I know the cross has become synonymous with Christianity to the point that we'll wear our jewelry with the cross, or we'll even have a cross in our sanctuaries. But in the first century, the cross was an instrument of Torture. It would be like us painting a picture of Auschwitz, the gas chambers, and putting it prominently in our sanctuary. That's what a first century person would think of us putting a cross on our walls. It was the most brutal form of death available. A death reserved only for the worst of the worst and slaves. And yet this is where Jesus willingly went to the cross. The one perfect one who ever walked on the face of this earth went to the cross so that we might be set free from our bondage to sin. He took the punishment that we deserve to pay, the eternal wrath of God, so that we could have peace with God and eternal life if only we would come to Him in saving faith. Jesus did not count His equality with God something to be used for His own advantage. but Rather, He used it to serve us and pay the punishment for our sin that we deserve to pay. As Mark 10.45 puts it, He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's what Paul's pointing out here in verses 6 to 8. And Paul's primary concern in pointing this out is to illustrate this is what the humility and other-centeredness that I talked about in verses 3 and 4 looks like. He's saying if you want to know what it looks like to live out verses 3 and 4, then look to Jesus because he did it perfectly. He willingly set aside the fellowship of heaven to enter into our broken world and die on the cross so that we could be set free. That is humility. It's no wonder that Jesus is exalted for this. Verses 9-11 through 11 is how the passage ends. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Language of verses 9-11 is language that's taken from Isaiah 45, the passage Jim read earlier. In Isaiah 45, God is declaring himself to be the exalted one. No other gods are like Him because He is the only God. He is over all gods, all false gods and all nations. And so in using Isaiah 45 here and applying it to Jesus, it's clear the point is Jesus is God. And although He humbled Himself, in the end He will be exalted. Every knee will bow, we're told. Some will do this willingly, by the way. Others will do it begrudgingly. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, some willingly some begrudgingly we're told in heaven, on earth, under the earth. In other words, spiritual beings, those who are living here on the earth, those who've already died, all will confess one day that Jesus is the Lord. Now again, some will do this willingly because they turn to Christ in this lifetime. They will confess Jesus is the Lord. Others will do it begrudgingly because they did not turn to Christ in this lifetime. They will admit that Jesus is who He said He was, but they will do so in the pain of hell. And so... The plea here in this is obviously turn to Christ now before it's too late because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But the point that Paul is making here in the context of Philippians 2 is this, that Jesus humbled himself, but in the end he will be exalted. And in that I think we're reminded of a really important principle here about service. Service is not easy. It costs Jesus nearly everything, but in the end it is worth it because the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I think that's the basic sense of the passage here. The Paul is challenging the Philippian Christians to seek unity by prioritizing the needs of others and counting others as more significant than themselves. And he points to both the experience of Christians, what we've experienced from God and from other Christians, and the example of Jesus Christ as our motivation. Now, having said all that, I have two application questions for you this morning then. In light of what we've just talked about here in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, two questions. Number one, are you actually doing this? Are you actually looking to the interests of others and counting others as more significant than yourself? Now here's the thing. All of us know in theory we shouldn't be selfish. None of us wants to be a lot so And yet, as I alluded to earlier, there's this temptation that lurks within all of us to be selfish. By nature, we are self-focused people. Living for others and looking to others' interests is just hard for us. President John F. Kennedy once famously quipped, Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Now, I'm sure we wouldn't agree with everything John F. Kennedy did politically, but I think he was on to something with that quote. Do we have a mindset, what can others do for us, or do we have the mindset, what can we do for others? My mentor in college once told me there are two people who walk into every room, two types of people who walk into every room. One person walks in the room and says, Here I am. Come talk to me. Be friendly to me. Minister to my needs. The other type of person walks in the room and says, there you are. I'm going to go befriend you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to minister to your needs. And my mentor's challenge for me and for others that he discipled in college was to be the type of person who did not say, here I am. but Rather, the type of person who walked in the room and said, there you are. Now, that mentality should carry over not just every room we walk walk into, but into every area of life. We're not looking to be served. We're looking to served. Now, kids, let me say something to you for a second, because I think this passage actually applies to you as well. So, kids, I want you to imagine with me for just a second that you're at home, and one of your siblings wants to play with a toy that you want to play with, or one of your siblings wants to use the computer before you do, or one of your siblings wants to choose a video game that you don't particularly like, or one of your siblings wants the last piece of pizza or the last cupcake, Kids, this passage in Philippians would tell you how you should think about those situations. You are to look to the interests of your siblings. You are to serve because Jesus served. So maybe what that means practically is next time you can let your brother or sister joyfully have the last cupcake. And you can do so because you know that this is what Jesus would do. He would be able to enjoy someone else enjoying something because he set aside his interests for others. Now adults... I think we should have the same mindset. Maybe not with the same things, although maybe cupcakes is your struggle too. If that's the case, you can set aside your cupcake interests as well. But in general, we should have the same mindset. Adults in the workplace, you shouldn't be thinking first and foremost about your own goals or your own interests. Instead, you should be thinking first and foremost about the cause of Christ and secondarily about serving others. In the home, we shouldn't be thinking, well, what can my family members do to benefit me? But rather, we should be thinking, what can I do to benefit them? The goal is not to look out for number one. Now, I know our society tells us this. You have to look out for yourself. And sadly, I think that mentality spills into the church sometimes. But that's not the mindset of a Christian. The Christian mindset is to live first and foremost for the glory of God and secondarily for others. Now, obviously, as even verse 4 would suggest, we still look to our own interests. Like there's times where for the sake of your own interests, and maybe there's a safety issue or something like that, you have to protect yourself. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is this. For the Christian, the mindset is first, live for the glory of God. Second, live for others. Because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did not count his equality with God something to be seized upon for his own advantage. Rather, he used his equality with God to bless and serve. And because we're his followers, we'll want to do the same. As we look to Jesus, it's only natural that we'll start looking to the interests of others. Which brings us to the second and last application question are you looking to the example of Christ? Are you looking to the example of Christ? Now, Paul could have stopped this passage at verse 4, and he could have just implored the Philippians, consider the interests of others. Could have stopped there. Maybe they said, why would we do that? Because I told you to, right? Like any good parent. He could have said that, but that's not what he does. Instead, what does he do? He points to Jesus. He says, do this, but then he gives the example of Christ because he understands that Jesus is the motivation for why we do what we do. And looking to Jesus is how we'll actually live out verses 3 and 4. So church, let me ask you this. How often do you find yourself thinking and meditating on the incarnation of Christ that Jesus took on flesh? How often do you find yourself thinking about the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ to the right hand, the fact that Jesus will come again, the fact that Jesus laid down his life for you? How often do you meditate on this? Because the more we dwell on what Jesus has done, the more we'll love Jesus and the more we'll love others. Earlier this week, I was reading on social media about some other Christian debate that was taking place. I don't even remember what it was about. But as I was reading the comments, which is always a dumb thing to do, I realized that no one really cared about anyone else in this debate. And no one even really cared about what was right or good anymore. All they wanted to do was win the argument. And in that moment, I had a realization. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, nothing good happens. When we spend more time on social media than we do reading the Bible, or when we spend more time listening to Fox News or CNN analysts than we do talking about Christ with others, or when we spend more time watching YouTube or TikTok videos than we do meditating on passages like this one, it's no wonder that we stop loving others and we just start caring about winning arguments. Hear me, the way forward is not by looking down at our phones or at our TVs. The way forward is by looking to Jesus. As we look to Christ, this is how we grow in our affection for Christ, but also in our affection for others. Because as we understand how Jesus loved us, this is what will motivate us to love others in the same way. Listen, I think we can all agree selfishness is ugly. Whether that selfishness be found in Lotso Bear, Mr. Potter, your neighbor down the street, or your own heart, it's ugly. But the way we defeat selfishness is not by trying harder to be selfless. Rather, the way we defeat selfishness is by looking to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we might live and be set free. So church, let me encourage you this morning. Let's look to Jesus. And then as we look to Jesus, I'm confident we will live for others. We'll set aside our own interests. And in humility, we'll count others more significant than ourselves. So church, let's look to Jesus, then let's love others. Let's pray. Father, we know what we're talking about today is easy to talk about in theory, but it is hard to actually do. And so we're praying for your help this morning. Help us to do this. Help us to look to the example of Christ, and because of the example, help us to live for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.